you're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hello, friends. Glad you could join me today. My special guest is going to be Dr. Chris Yandel. He's a native of where I've been broadcasting from for nearly a year. He's a former college athletics administrator and award-winning public relations professional at both the K-12 and college level. He spent more than 10 years with five different NCAA Division I programs and then more recently moved his family back to where the heart is. Who can tell me where the heart is? That's right. Home is where the heart is. And for Chris, that's in South Louisiana. Same like me. (laughs) One time my wife and I were in northern Thailand. This was a few years ago. We had gone up near the Laos border, and the girl who was showing us around would introduce us to people and say this and whatever their name was. Let's say his name was Vijet. She would say, this Vijet, he from Laos. Or, this Milai, she and Vijet, they from Lao. <laughs> but then, when we'd see somebody local that she knew, somebody from Thailand, she would get really excited and introduce them and say, let's say her name was Apple. She'd go, this Apple, she Thai like me. <laughs> Apple Thai like me. <laughs> and thereafter, everyone we encountered was Thai like her. And we thought that was great. So for a while, it was a running joke inside the overseas fam. <laughs> Where was I? That's right. Home is where the heart is. Of course, South Louisiana. Home away you make it. What? You like to see homos naked? Who knows what that's from? Anyone? Anyone? Joe Dirt. That's right. Everybody know that. Hi, damn boy. I'm Joe Dirte. Don't try to church it up, Dirt. <laughs> he tried to go French with his name, and the guy, the guy he was talking to just wasn't having it. You know, come to think of it, that might be a good question for the fun questions part of the podcast. What movie can you most quote? For me, it's Joe Dirte. I love that movie. If you, dear listener, have any ideas for what would make a great fun question, send those to me. I'd love to hear your ideas at man underscore overseas on both Instagram and Twitter. Back to my guest. Chris transitioned to K-12 communications before becoming the assistant Commissioner for Public Affairs with the Louisiana Board of Regents. However, he has become way more popular for what he's done at home, which is writing daily notes, daily hashtag dad lunch notes to his eighth grade daughter, Addison. So you'll hear us discussing being a girl dad. I asked questions about his time at the U, which is the University of Miami. He also worked at Georgia Tech, where he says the head football coach had it in for him from day one. I find that to be very interesting. He also worked as Associate Director of Athletic Communications at Baylor University, all the while working quite a bit as an adjunct professor. So Chris is a very smart guy, birds of a feather. He was introduced to me by Jared Parfait, another man I respect for his intelligence and parenting. He was a previous guest. The episode was called Poker, Politics, and Parenting, and that episode happens to be the most downloaded episode of mine this year, of 2021. So if you haven't had a chance to tune in, it was a, it was a good one. 
Today, Chris tells very interesting stories from his varied experience. His depth of experience is is fascinating, and just overall knowledge. I believe when somebody's as knowledgeable as Chris, it makes for a great episode. So I hope you enjoy our discussion as much as I did. Let's bring on Dr. Chris Yandel. Chris, welcome, man. I'm so glad you're here. Hey, thanks for having me. It's uh, finally a beautiful day in New Orleans, and it's not raining, and it's not 90 degrees, so you can't ask for anything better. Yeah, it's rained probably 26 of the last 27 days here. It's been nuts. Yeah. You worked at the University of Miami, right? The U? Yes, sir, the U. Were there a lot of alumni that would come and hang around the facilities? Oh, absolutely. I think my favorite memory, um, you know, for anybody that's ever lived in Miami, you can't get anywhere quickly. And where we live south of Miami, um, I would probably have to leave my my house at 6 a.m. to get to the office around 7. Uh, one morning I got there a little early because football practice was typically early in the morning and they still do it now. And I got to open the door for Jimmy Graham and Jonathan Vilma um, as a Saints fanatic. That was pretty cool. You'd see Ed Reed sightings every now and then, Ray Lewis sightings. Michael Irvin. Yeah, Irvin. You got Kelly not so much um, because he was sick at the time, but Gino Toretta was was on the radio a lot. Benny Testaverde, Bernie Kosar. Yeah, I mean, everywhere you turned, there was some former NFL player. With a very nice, shiny Super Bowl ring on their finger showing up. So when you guys brought recruits in, would they be hanging around quite a bit? Sometimes, but so when I got there in 2012, that was during the Nevin Shapiro scandal. My first day on the job was the second Nevin Shapiro story, so I was already questioning my life decisions <laughs> in, in moving to Miami. Uh, so we were restricted in the beginning into having – alumni of that caliber around us uh, when recruits are present. However, anytime a recruit was around, the Heisman trophies came out, the national championship trophies, all the bowl championship trophies. And yeah, my last year there in the 13-14 year, we had just finished a new locker room that was christened by Dwayne The Rock Johnson. So to have that as a thing to pitch to kids – And to have a big picture of him in the locker room and all those other greats, that was pretty cool. You you can't uh, do much better than that. Yeah, because that shows you can also make a career in showbiz coming out of the U, right? Absolutely. And and The Rock, uh, I met him in passing one time. He was a decent football player. Wasn't great by any standards. Tight end, right? Uh, Defensive end. Mm. You know, he went to the CFL, got cut, thought his dreams were over. Got into that fake wrestling stuff that people love to watch and then acting. And I, I think his career turned out a whole lot better than it could have been being a professional football player. Do you guys primarily compete? Or when you were there, did you primarily compete with Florida State and Florida for recruits? Yeah, so if you've – anybody that listens, I highly recommend watching the 30 for 30 uh, on the U, both, both uh, the first and the second version. The thing I learned quickly when I got there was back in the 80s, it was only Miami, Florida State, and Florida. They got all the players, and everything from uh, I-4 and Orlando South was considered, quote, the state of Miami. They got all those kids. Um, Howard Schnellenberger and Jimmy Johnson, they recruited heavily in Overtown and the lower-income areas of Miami, 
and gave those guys a chance, like the Michael Irvins, the Benny Blades, all these great athletes that nobody was tapping into. But then when UCF, USF, Florida Atlantic, FIU, all these other schools started creating football programs, Miami didn't have the stronghold they had anymore. And I think that's a lot of what some of the downturn has been since 2001. Don't ever tell that to a diehard Miami fan because they will want to hurt you. But that that's the sad reality. With so many more football programs now, you still have a large pot to pick from in terms of recruits. But the recruits have a lot more choices now than they did in, in the 80s and early 90s. What most people don't understand about the U is it's a private school, correct? Correct. And when they were winning in the 80s, academically, they weren't that great. When I left, we were a top 40 nationally academic institution. And that's a $60,000 a year private school in the middle of Coral Gables. Wow. It's a very small student body, maybe eight to 9,000 undergrad. And if you factor in law school and the medical center, maybe 12,000 total. So it's a very small school. How do you keep those kids out of trouble off the field? Now, you said Coral Gables. I imagine that's a suburb. Yeah, so Coral Gables is, a, is an enclave south of, of, uh, of Miami itself. You know, I was a college kid, and you were a college kid. It, it's hard. One thing, looking back, one thing I don't like about how some of these athletes at these major schools are treated, their schedule is so regimented. They barely have any time for free time between practice, weights, voluntary workouts, um, their class schedule. Um, a lot of them have tutoring or other obligations. The biggest issue I always had, trying to schedule media interviews, Miami's media market's one of the largest in the country. Miami Hurricane football is covered like a professional football team. Hey, I need Duke Johnson or somebody else interviews. I need an hour blocked off. And trying to negotiate that and get that. It, it was tough. I mean, those those were two hard years working there. I do miss it. We loved Miami. I kind of wish I would have given it a little bit more of a chance. But you'll see a lot of, like Nick Saban and all those guys, their schedule is, is set for them. I mean, you got 24 hours in a day. You may have 30 minutes to yourself. I mean, it's, it's pretty pretty set in stone. There's not a lot of wiggle room. And are you coaching them on how to interview well? Yes. Yeah, so one of our major things were helping them how to answer questions. We would obviously we will ask the media beforehand, hey, what's what's the topic? If it's a if it's a focus story on that one individual, kind of give me some ideas so I can help them. There were some players before going to college, their only experience in interviews were, you know, rivals dot com and all these recruiting nerds um, which I'm sure I'll get hate mail for that interviewing them after a practice or a game so that's the extent of their media training so thankfully at Miami uh, when Al Golden was the coach he entrusted me and my staff to to help with the media training of the new kids coming in like hey you're freshmen you don't get to do media interviews until the season starts but let's start working on some of those fundamentals helping with the ums and the ahs and the verbal pauses, teaching them, if you hear the question, repeat the question as a part of your answer, teaching them 
you don't have to answer everything, believe it or not. And if something makes you uncomfortable or if you're unclear about a question, ask a follow-up. Don't assume you think you heard it right if you know you felt something didn't sound right in your head. Ask them to clarify. Ask them for a follow-up because that's going to help you. We would rather you ask those questions than you be bulletin board material the next day or I get a nasty email or a text message from the coaches with a lot of expletives. <laughs> Why did this happen? Mm. Does it bother you when – Athletes call female reporters man. That bothers me to no end. <laughs> yes and no. It does. You're the product of your environment. And sometimes I'll hear myself say things growing up in, in Homa or Lafayette that didn't translate in Miami or Atlanta. <laughs> and you realize, okay, I need to kind of clean up my nomenclature. And, and I think after a while, if – if they're trained well in, in media interviewing, that, that cle- cleans itself up. We, we always try to say you can't err on the side of caution. If you have to, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. That's going to not only give you a lot of good will with the interviewer, but it's just going to get you in a good habit, and you can carry that forward. But you know, there's some habits that can be broken. It's on the can, and, and we, we did our best. One of the young guys I coached played football at Nickel State, and he's now in sale, medical sales college in Dallas, and he has no accent. And I'm like, how did, you, how did you get rid of your accent? And he said that he was just blessed. His parents spoke great English, and so did he. I had to change the way I spoke when I moved from Thibodeau to Houston as yep. an eighth grader. My name changed from Bradley to Brad because down here, you don't say the D, it's Bradley. Mm-hmm. Bradley D is what they called me. <laughs> so when I got to Houston, I got tired of correcting people and saying my name. They would say, what, what's your name, Brad? And I just got tired of it. And I was yeah. like, yeah, my name's Brad. So my name changed. Down here, I'm still Bradley, but in Houston, I'm... I'm Brad, but I would say things like, I remember walking up to the coolest guy in school when I was in ninth grade, and I said, bro, you got a quarter? And he's like, what? <laughs> what did you say? Bro, do I got a quarter? And it's like, yeah, man, just a quarter for the Coke machine. They weren't having it. I had to change the way I speak. People couldn't understand me. Yeah, I think uh, one of the positives of moving around a lot, the the accent went away. I picked up so many different regional dialects and words that Mm -hmm. I'm just a mixture of a lot of things. Down here, when you go 30 minutes down the road, the accent changes. It's crazy. Yeah, being on the North Shore of Mandeville, not really any accents, but as soon as you cross the lake (laughs) into Metri, there's an accent. Obviously, when you go further south into Homa, Thibodeau, we have a lot of family in Lafayette. Cajun accent could be thick. It's definitely unique to our state. So the guys you mentioned at the U, these mm-hmm. famous guys, The Rock and Edron James, Michael Irvin, Bernie Kosar, how much money would they have made under this new rule change? The NIL, they call it? Yeah. Oh, a crap ton. Like six figures easy? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What's your take on that, on the rule? Well, I can say with uh, absolute certainty that, and this is probably jumping ahead, one of the reasons why I was probably pushed out of college athletics five to six years ago is because I didn't like the treatment of athletes and their restrictions because you have 
coaches making millions of dollars. The NCAA is a $2 billion, quote, nonprofit organization, and these young men and women are getting nothing. I don't count scholarship because up until the early 50s, they weren't allowed to have athletic scholarships. They had to be there on academics alone. Mm. So contrary to what a lot of people think, college sports is still alive and well. College football season is going to kick off in four weeks, three weeks. Honestly, I I think it's great. Will there be some hiccups and some issues? A hundred percent. Nothing is ever perfect. That's why you have compliance officers on campuses to help these young men and women navigate because there are some bad actors. Not going to lie. As soon as the NIL stuff started happening, you knew there were going to be some bad actors involved that want to take advantage of these of these young kids and take away their money or happen to get them in trouble. But the schools are have been smart enough to work with third-party groups that help them say, hey, I'm open to endorsements. Pitch them to me, and these, these athletes can pick and choose what they want. Mm. So like uh, Louisiana Lafayette's quarterback, Levi Lewis, has one with Eat Lafayette which I think is, is great. It's local. It's it's big for tourism. I think that's perfect. Over at LSU. Sorry, what's that paying him? Do you know? Uh, that I don't know. And to back up, all these people that were con- just consumed with the fact that these athletes are going to make millions of dollars, that's just not how a free market economy works. The market's going to dictate what the market dictates. And – you have a quarterback at Alabama that's going to make seven figures and he hasn't even taken a snap yet. A lot of that is because it's Alabama and he was a highly sought-after recruit. If Zion Williamson was at Duke, he would definitely be seven figures. Shaquille O'Neal would have definitely been seven figures. So this is just – the NIL is to give every athlete an opportunity to have some sort of profit off their name, image, and likeness. It may only be $100 a month. That's still something that can help them buy food because there have been times I was on trips with players that didn't have – ran out of per diem and were hungry, and I paid for their meal out of their own pocket. Was an NCAA violation. Do I care? Absolutely not Hmm. because the restrictions that some of these athletes were under, it's demoralizing. And with the amount of money they're helping schools make, I think it's – I'm I'm happy to finally see that something like this has happened. It's not going to be the end of amateur athletics and college <laughs> athletics. It really isn't. But we got to see what happens after this first year, and I guarantee you there'll be some things tweaked and changed for sure. Well, you talked about them not having an hour to do an interview. Yeah. I can only imagine how much time is going to be consumed by this rule change I would think they're on Twitter and Instagram all the time trying to mm-hmm. boost their image and get more followers so that they can make more money. And, and it's funny you say that because there was a coach, and I don't remember who. Gosh, it must have been last week because they've been having media days lately for the upcoming football season, and they complained about that exact piece of the pie about, well, now they got all these endorsement things. It's really not – Media interviews can be can take an hour if the reporter's long-winded, if there's a photo shoot involved. But a lot of the stuff with NIL, it's just getting on TikTok or Instagram, promoting something. 
that's really all it is for the for the most part. There could be some in person events they may have to do, which like anybody else would, but I, I don't see that being not only a time waster or taking away their time. I also don't see it breaking up the locker room like some coaches have said it's going to. Mm-hmm. Would a company be throwing their money away if the guy at Alabama doesn't start? That's a good question. I wonder if they have contingencies in their contract, like you have to play 60% of snaps in order to earn your You know, that's a, that's a good question. With it being Alabama, I don't think it's a waste. <laughs> uh, honestly, or, or even, this can be at any SEC school. You can say, hey, we signed the third-string punter at LSU to X, Y, and Z. It's still the fact that the name is recognizable. Now, the athletes cannot use the school marks within any sort of endorsement. They have to get permission, right? They have to get permission, and it's they're being selective in, in what they choose. But, I mean, ultimately... I, I can't imagine any business would find it a bad investment if it's not a starter when they see how rabid these college fans are, especially for an SEC football or a Big Ten football, ACC football. The fans are going to buy it if they see an athlete from their favorite school promoting it. I saw where the LSU gymnast was probably going to be the first Mm million-dollar NIL Mm-hmm. athlete for a gymnast to get that much money tells me that it's all about your social media following because mm-hmm. we don't see gym on tv we're seeing it now because of the olympics but yeah. that's once every four years so it makes sense to me that even as a ninth and tenth grader you're trying to build up that social media following because that's going to portend well for how much money you can make as a college athlete it's crazy how much it possibly could change athletes, but I, I you, and I think it's a lot of it is solely on social media presence. Yeah, because people that were against NIL were convinced it was going to kill women's sports. Uh, she's going to be a millionaire, and she's a female athlete. So there debunks your theory right there. Everything is social heavy. If if you follow any school on the variety of platforms, the amount of content and the quality of content they're putting out and the fact that schools are now investing in larger digital offices to help these athletes with their NIL contracts and putting up with content, the money's there. It, there's, there's plenty of money to go around and, and nobody's pockets are, are going to be thinned out. Yeah, and women's basketball is on TV quite a bit. You mentioned before we started recording that you were at Baylor mm-hmm. during Brittany, Brittany, Brittany Griner's tenure at, at Baylor. She probably would have made good money, right? Absolutely. She she would have. I worked with men's basketball at Baylor. Um, the amount of media attention she got as a freshman, I mean, six foot eight, highest rate recruit out of Houston coming to to Waco and, and a women's basketball program that had already won a national title. Yeah, had the NIL been around, yeah, she would have I'd be willing to say she would have made close to to seven figures. Um just because it's the biggest name in women's college basketball. W- women's sports can I think people are going to be surprised. Well, n- people like me won't be surprised, but there's going to be the casual fans that are surprised 
when they see how well these women athletes are going to do in making money off their name, image, and likeness. Women's sports has a powerful brand, and I think what the NCAA did during March Madness and that complete screw-up, I think that only helped women's sports and how people felt about it. I, I I really do think that women's athletes are going to benefit greatly from this new rule. Speaking of Baylor, it was so cool to see the interview that the Baylor basketball coach did when he was first hired at Baylor, mm-hmm. saying that they were going to win a national championship. Did you follow their national championship run this year? I did. Um, ever since I left in 2012, uh, always stayed in touch with, with Scott Drew. I honestly thought last year before the, the pandemic prematurely ended the season, I thought for sure they were going to win the national title last year. Uh, but the fact that they finally got over the hump, um, I was so happy. They, they've they worked so hard to get there. And, you know, I, I went to Waco in 2008, and people, there were still national media at the time that were still critical uh, of Scott. We had, they had just gone to the NCAA tournament the year before for the first time in 20 years. The the narrative, the the funny narrative for those four years was that he couldn't coach, which I always laughed at um, because I think people were just looking at something. And yet we went to two Elite Eights in the four years. Well, and wasn't he the coach at Valparaiso when they called that play for his son? He was the assistant coach. His dad was the coach. And his his brother Bryce, and at Baylor the play was run numerous times under a different name, and it's it they're a great family, and I was we were so happy that he finally got it, and you know he's he's a great person, great coach. I wish it would have happened when I was there, uh, but I have a lot of great memories during my time in Baylor. Way to come back from the depths of doom because when I, when we played at Baylor, this was 2002, I played baseball. I can remember there was a relief pitcher that was suspended for putting a cat in the microwave. And just prior to, I think it was the same year or the year before, the basketball program had a murder take place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's incredible. It, it is. And uh, those four years, we had... We always answered those questions, always had those media requests. Hey, you know, you're X amount of years separated from the murder. So we went to the Elite Eight in 2010. That was a front-page story about how he took it over. That happened. Okay, that's great, whatever. 2012, we go back to the Elite Eight. It's the same song and dance again. So I think finally, after winning a national title, that crap can be put to bed. I mean, it, it's over and done with. So you were at Baylor and the U. What are the similarities between those two schools? Because I believe they have about the same enrollment, right? Undergrad, eight uh, or nine thousand. Yeah, Baylor. I want to say undergrad was around ten, and if you include uh, Baylor Law, the the seminary, yeah, maybe fourteen thousand total. So yeah, roughly, roughly the same. Not only campus size, but but student population. Um, there were some similarities. Uh, I went from one school with incidentally baggage to another, um, so that's probably why I lost more hair and gotten grayed over the years. Could it also contribute to why you were hired? Do you think it was easier to get a job at those schools at that time? It could have been. I mean, I was, 
I was only an assistant sports information director at Louisiana Lafayette for a year before Baylor came to me for their men's basketball job. And I didn't realize this. So you were the SID, sports information mm-hmm. director? So that was in 2008. Uh, picked up my wife and three-week-old, and we moved to Waco, Texas, and we loved it there for four years. And wasn't looking at leaving and, you know, made some connections and University of Miami had an opening. And it was it's funny because at the time it was between Miami and Houston. University of Houston had had approached me at the same time for an opening and Miami moved quicker. And when when I took the job to be the director of communications at Miami, I had just turned 30. And I think at the time I was one of the youngest in Division One. To, to run a communications office, which is a cool stat to have on your resume, but it's a hell of a lot of stress. I bet. Uh, a lot of stress. But I, I learned a tremendous amount at Miami. It's a steep learning curve. You know, you're, you're thrown into the deep end. And in hindsight, I wish I would have stayed a little bit longer. Um, but I, I think I got a little starry-eyed when another school approached me and wanted to give me a senior-level staff position based on my on my work and my resume from, from Baylor and Miami. And I jumped on that chance rather than staying in Miami and maybe seeing how other opportunities would have panned out. Um, and unfortunately, I made a bad decision. I went from getting one of the highest awards in college athletics – among sports information professionals in 2014 to being out of the business 23 months later. Man. My favorite sports information director is Ross Blacker. Thanks to social media, I've been able to keep in touch with him, but he's a great guy. I was new on campus. Um, I don't know if there had ever been a, a picture to represent the baseball program, but he made me the poster boy stealing a base, and mm-hmm. I just thought that that was the greatest thing because my family and friends back in Houston, you know, when they went to Nichols.com, Go Colonels, that's what it was, Go Colonels.com, they saw a picture of me, and I just happened to be in college right at about the time that stats started to be put on the Internet so mm-hmm. everybody could follow you, and that was just the coolest thing. I, I was talking to uh, the guy I mentioned earlier about his time at Nichols playing football, and I said – do you think you would have made any money as through this NIL rule? And he said, not much. And I said, how much do you think? And he goes, well, maybe like two grand a month. And I'm like, that is huge money yeah. for a, a college kid because they won a Southland Conference championship. Yep. So I'm sure he would have got something from an auto dealership mm-hmm. or just just something. But like you said earlier, about $100 a month, 100 200 300 is a huge deal to a college kid. Hell, my rent was only 180 bucks when I was in college. Yeah, I mean, I would have loved that extra money. And ultimately, whether you're the the starter, the second string, the tackling dummy, everybody has value based on their name, image, and likeness. That value is going to fluctuate. It's no different than if you're working in the real world. If you're an assistant director, you get paid forty thousand. If you're an associate, you get paid sixty. If you run the office, eighty. If you're the CEO, you get a lot more. It's no different than the real world, and. I, I don't know why people got hung up on that so much, but for me, ultimately, when you see how much money this business makes, I think it's more than fair that they get something for what they're doing. Yes. 
throw me the scraps, please. I will t- gladly take them. <laughs> uh, so you co-authored a book called Developing Social Media Plans for College Sports Organizations. Yep. Is that right? Yep. In uh, 2015 uh, with Dr. Jimmy Sanderson. Uh, I was at my when we started doing. I was at Miami at the time, and he was at Clemson at the time. And then when we finally got it published, I was in Atlanta, Georgia Tech, and I think he had just moved to Texas Tech. How much do you think social media has changed college sports? Tremendously. It's kind of like when in the in the early two thousands when you start seeing more and more college games on television, and how that helped enhance the brand and get a lot more people involved social media's done the exact same thing um you know we learned at miami that fans that were in the stands for the game they still had their phone they were still active they were engaged they wanted to see highlights or content during the game or see how their favorite players reacted after the game it's a constant loop of of content and giving the fans more, 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 and more. They want all this this special access, which is great. Just means you've got to have more staff to do that. And at the time, during my stint in athletics, we didn't have the extra time. It was the communications people doing it. It was the wild, wild west. And, and seeing all the money these schools are, are pouring into those resources is great. Some of this content's fantastic. I, I think I would have been phased out of the business eventually because I couldn't keep up with, with what some of these schools are doing and some of these talented designers and videographers and, and all the things they're putting out. Mm. But it's different on an individual level, right? Like you'll have a Paul Pierce who will have strippers at his poker game and put that in his Instagram story yeah. and lose his job. So yep. you can't control what individuals do. But you were you were more involved with with the program as a whole, like promoting the team. Yeah, and and we would we would give. I, I really hate the word policy. A lot of schools have these social media policies. Policy sounds too legal to me. We we would always try to offer guidelines and best practices. Be like, hey, here's what you can do. This will help you as with build your brand individually. But just know whatever you put out there is going to have a consequence, whether good or bad. We prefer the good consequence, but just know whenever you share something online, that could require the media to follow up and email me and call me. Well, I saw so-and-so post this. What does he mean? What? I'm like, I-, I don't know. He's a 19-year-old kid in college. He just had a – he probably had a bad day in class or a bad day at practice. He's just upset at himself. So I think I think that's the one of the major downfalls um, in trying to help these athletes create a brand and trying to make them understand whatever you put out there, you are on display, and everything's going to be open to criticism. Mm-hmm. Everything's going to make the news, whatever you want to call the news now. It, it's tough, um, you know, and we have the same issue now. You know, I have a 13 and a 10 year old trying to instill those same ideas into them. Be like, hey, I know you think being funny and stupid at 13 on TikTok is great, but that stuff could come and bite you in the butt at 18 and 19 because you hear stories about schools 
retracting scholarships because they saw so-and-so post something online that doesn't meet the university's standards and, and their beliefs. And the, the, one, the one phrase I always hung on in college athletics, and I still do to this day, we all have freedom of speech. We don't have freedom from consequence. And I think a lot of people, they only hear the freedom of speech part. They don't realize that, oh, if I do this, I could get into trouble. Like job loss, suspended, kicked off the team, lose my scholarship. And unfortunately, I guess not enough people have had that happen to them for others to realize that that is a true consequence. Yeah, I may have told this story on the podcast before, so if I'm repeating myself, I apologize. But when I was 30 years old, I was negotiating a salary to go work for a new software company. Not a new software company, but for a new job. And one of the questions he asked was, what happened at Tulane your your senior year? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well... I read a story about you getting kicked out of the game, being ejected. And I said, oh, that's a great story. Should I come to work for you? I'm going to tell you that. It's a great story. I'm, I'm excited to tell you that story. He goes, no, you'll tell me now. Your salary depends on it. And I said, whoa. Yeah. And I went home and Googled it up. And sh- sure enough, it was on page six of Google or something. Yeah. So he did some serious digging. And this is back before it was customary to research people before you met with them. Yep. Nowadays, you would never go on a date, let's say, without Googling them. Oh, absolutely. Or bring in a recruit without looking at their social media. Yeah, they always – I, my last two jobs, they looked up my social media and everything I did. Thankfully, I'm <laughs> clean. most – pretty squeaky clean. And I mean I – people can think I'm a narcissist for saying this. Once a week, I'll check. I'll Google my name. Just to make sure that there's nothing out there that I'm unaware of that could potentially hurt me in any sort of way. And for that reason, I think people should make it a regular thing for them Mm -hmm. to do once a quarter. Or maybe every time you update your resume, which should be about once a quarter, Google your name. Yeah, Put it in quotes because you'll get a lot more specific results. That's a little trick. Yeah, there's not many yandles in the world. Um, There's a hockey player. In the NHL, Keith Yandel. Hmm. So I'll get some of his stuff, but I always have to put in my name in quotes to make sure it shows up. So I used to get this question a lot in the corporate world. Are you related to Mark D'Antonio? So when I was calling on (laughs) companies in Detroit, that was a common question. Because usually when you see my name, it has an apostrophe in it. But my grandfather took it out 70, 80 years ago. Why are you such a strong advocate for higher education? It's a good question. I think I think it goes back to my mom's grandfather. He was a professor of horticulture at then USL in Lafayette, taught for 40-some-odd years. And it was always instilled in me that education was important. You're going to get somewhere in life based on your education. And... This is going to sound like a really stupid, depressing story. But stay tuned, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think my scene I've shared this multiple times online. Um, my senior year in high school um, at Vanderbilt Catholic in Holma, uh, I was in my senior year honors English class, and 
I was asked to diagram a sentence or ask I was asked where apostrophes or commas would go and I screwed up multiple times and my teacher said well you'll never amount to anything in life until jackasses learn how to fly and I took that to heart because my older sister um, had gone to the same school everybody loved her she graduated the top of her class and at the time, she was in law school, and I was about to graduate high school and trying to figure out what I wanted to do in my life. And I honestly think, Brad, looking back, that's what kicked my ass into high gear. I was always going to college, but that made me want to get better grades than anybody else. That made me want to go to grad school and make myself better. But ultimately... I got to see working in college athletics the power higher education can have on your life. It can be life-changing. It can open a lot of doors. I went back and got my Ph.D. after I got fired in 2016. I just – I'm passionate about how that can help us move forward and make our society better. Edu- education is going to make us better. And I hope my kids go to college. I'll advocate for them to go to college. But to me, American higher education is so fundamentally important. And I think that's why I went back into higher ed um, to work in PR. Just I feel so passionate about what it can do. And I believe it's a game changer for a lot of us. I have this theory that people who go to get multiple degrees or PhDs, they, and this wouldn't apply in all cases, but I'm generalizing here, they probably have a tough time motivating themselves to learn online and need that structure provided by a formalized education. I feel like as the cost of college goes up astronomically, Mm -hmm. the value of it is actually diminishing because of how much you can get for free online. Yeah. What are are your thoughts? I can understand that. I'm not going to lie. I I think there's some changes to higher ed that need to happen in terms of, like you mentioned, tuition and cost of an education is astronomical. Um, I joke – halfway that i'm gonna die under the the weight of my debt <laughs> so you still have all this debt yeah for my phd yeah i saw that number and i i about died what is that number uh, somewhere around eighty five thousand dollars jesus and that's two years it takes to get three three okay so i got my phd at mercer university and thankfully they did a hybrid program so everything was online with the exception of three saturdays a semester so i drove to atlanta Three Saturdays a semester from Mandeville. What was that, 10 hours? Yeah, my parents lived in Alabama, um, so I would stay at their house, get up at 2.30 on Saturday morning, drive to Atlanta, be ready for class at 8, two classes, I'm out the door at 3, back to Alabama, and then get up on Sunday morning and come back to Mandeville. So I was I was dedicated, and I, I was always asked, why are you getting a Ph.D.? And the simple answer is I just wanted to make myself better because 
it was not only was it a lifelong goal, I wanted to learn something new and having succumb to my career abruptly ending before I think subconsciously it was like a safety net that, okay, if I finish my PhD, I can have something to hold on to in the event something like this happens again, that that would help our family. But the real reason is I'd, I'd always wanted it to better myself. And I doubted myself for a year from doing it. And then my wife, Ashley, went and bought it the GRE book to study and she scheduled my GRE exam. She's like, here's the book. Here's the date you're taking the test. You're going to school. Because uh, she knew deep down that's what you wanted. Yeah. And, and if I, and I had been putting it off, I thought about doing it at Miami. I saw the price tag and Miami as an employee, I think they would only offer like 60% tuition remission. And then I was afraid with my work schedule and the stress of it all. I was afraid in the end that I wouldn't be able to last more than a semester and it would just be a waste of money. So uh, when Mercer came up as an opportunity, I jumped on it and I'm grateful for it. I finished in 2019. I was the only one in my cohort that finished on time because I was that driven and motivated. It's like I don't have time to waste. I want to make sure I get it done and now have a pretty price tag to pay for it. Um, but I'm okay with that. It, it's definitely, I think, the getting my PhD opened my mind at looking at scenarios a little bit differently, which is what the program is all about. Um, so I think in, in that effort it helped. And my wife decided to go back to school and, and get a certificate in medical coding after seeing what the PhD program did for me. So I, I you know, I think education can be infectious. Uh, but going back to your question, yeah, Google has a lot of answers. The Internet has a lot of answers. But as I jokingly tell my kids, Abraham Lincoln once said, don't believe everything you see on the Internet <laughs> because there's a lot of incorrect information. But there is a lot of correct information. I, you know, I've taught myself video editing and, and other things in, in my career by watching YouTube and reading tutorials they have been extremely helpful but then you have some websites and other things that are like seriously this, i mean this could be really hurtful and harmful and people read it enough and they go down a rabbit hole and we could be in the situation we're in now so what was your phd program uh so my phd is was in higher education leadership my undergrads in public relations my masters is in sport management and growing up, before my grandfather passed away in the early 2000s, he'd always said, don't get multiple degrees in the same discipline. Try to diversify. And at the time, working in, in sports, sport management and public relations, that makes a hell of a lot of sense. That works together. And the higher ed aspect now that I'm back at higher ed and public relations, that makes a lot of sense. I can write academic articles on the side with, with other college professors and topics, but ultimately it was, it was so I can better myself because if you're not learning something new every day, then you're doing something wrong. What percentage of a PhD program is the dissertation aspect of it? 
naively when I started it, I thought that was like the whole process. And, you know, probably the last two semesters we had a dissertation class. So really the, the dissertation, you're fine tuning it. You're writing things that you want to, you think you want to do the first year or two. And then once you submit a proposal at the end of year two, that's when you kind of have an idea, okay, here's the topic. And then for the next year, between fine-tuning it, research, fine-tuning it again, edits, re-edits. I mean, I probably went through 25 iterations. But if I had to put a percentage on it, you know, I'd almost be willing to say 50 because some of the coursework wasn't as hard because they kind of complemented each other. So we'll have two classes a semester, and they they kind of go hand in hand. So the coursework, it was a lot of writing, but ultimately it was writing on the topic or topics you wanted to research on. So you were writing all along the way, and then at the end, you're trying to put the pieces together and make it sound somewhat coherent. And could it be about anything as long as it's under this umbrella of higher education I, management? Anything's a strong word because I thought that too. I thought like, oh, hey, I want to do this. And ultimately, it was one of the first semesters. And they said ultimately the, the dissertation, number one, is not going to be a great academic work. When you look back on it, it's going to be shitty writing. <laughs> and I look back on mine. I'm like, some of mine's okay. But it is kind of shitty. And why is that? You spend so much time on it. You have a, a chair. Yeah. Ultimately, the dissertation, you're trying to prove you understand the process of research. Uh. So you're, try, you're, you're proving, hey, I did A, B, C, D, and E. Here's the process. I followed the protocol. Here are my results. And there, you know, I published one paper from it. Um, I probably could have published multiple if I really wanted to, if I really tried. I just didn't have the energy. So how does that work? You, It's 50 pages long, and you take three and make it an article? So my dissertation, if you include the references, is like 185. Without the references, it's like 150. Jeez. So it goes through. You have an introduction, and then you have what you give like a historical breakdown. So mine was on – I interviewed 10 division one football players about their academic experience in college. So I went through the history of the NCAA and the academic reform. Um, you have a whole section of literature research that would help support or maybe not support what you're trying to do. And then a whole section on methods and, and everything. So it's like chunks here and there trying to, to piece it together. So I did what they call a qualitative study. So it's a lot of writing. So interviewing and transcribing and trying to come up with the common terms, common themes, um, because I did not want to do a survey because my statistics class still gives me nightmares. So the, the article I did publish, there were some pretty interesting things about two specific players academic experience referring to it as a roller coaster not having time and that became one article with the data i still have i could probably go back and write another one but sometimes when i see a shiny object i get distracted 
and instead I went a different route and and did some research with COSIDA, which is the College Sports Information Directors of America, and understanding the mental health of their staff and SIDs across the country. The results were pretty interesting, and I'm working with a a professor because I'm an adjunct at at Winthrop University in South Carolina. What does that mean? I teach part-time. I teach an online course of sport public relations in the fall. Um, So I'm not a full-time professor, just kind of teach on the side because I enjoy it. And so I'm working with a full-time professor, and we're working together on on putting together a paper and our our research findings, which I think will be rather interesting. Having been somebody in that sports information profession that did battle mental health issues because of the stress and everything, it's I thought it was a rather timely, timely topic. We're going to get into that. So does adjunct just mean part-time? Yeah. Do you lecture? Is that part of the deal? When I did in person, I would. I, I would always enjoy the conversation more. Yeah, I would have a you know a slide deck with some some critical points from the chapter and some examples. But ultimately, I liked the conversation with the students in person because you know they all have these grandiose ideas that they're going to be sports agents or or this that or the other. So not only offering them career advice but answering their questions but using what's going on in real time and applying it to whatever that that chapter that week's lecture topic was that was probably the thing i enjoyed the most about teaching in person whenever i'm given the opportunity to speak to young athletes i always ask the coach what percentage of these guys think that they're going pro and the answer is always 100 percent. yes yes and it's true. And my the last class I taught in person was at Southeastern. And, oh, it was fall of 19 because I had just gotten my Ph.D. that semester. I had a class of 15. I'm like, I go around the room, have them introduce themselves on the first day. What do you want to do? And out of the 15 or 16, nine of them wanted to be sports agents. So nine out of the 15, so more than 50% wanted to be sports agents. So I, I have the sports agent students stand up. I'm like, all right, look around. There's nine of you. And that would point you, 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 and you sit down. And I would leave one person. I said, one person might be lucky enough after out of this group to become one. Just because that market is becoming so saturated. You have so you have these huge conglomerate agencies that have all these agents that are getting these random athletes. And then you have these independent ones. It's a hard. It's kind of like, you know, being a lawyer. The market is so saturated. You know, it's going to be hard to make a name for yourself. You're not going to walk in on day one like Jerry Maguire <laughs> and, and sign this m- player to this massive contract. And you're going to have this windfall. And, and trying to understand that, and then telling them, I said, my first job in college athletics full time was thirty thousand dollars. After taxes, my take home pay was fourteen thousand five hundred dollars. And they couldn't believe it. I said, that, you need to understand that's what it is. So if you really want to do it, you got to be prepared. Those sacrifices have to come in on the front end. Yeah, the attorneys that I know, well, one of my best buddies is an attorney. It took him six years to make six figures. Yeah, it, it, it's tough. I mean, it's it, it's extremely tough. And I, just as much as anybody else, wants instant gratification <laughs> and 
you know, the easy wins now and hit the easy button and everything happens, but it doesn't work that way anymore. Do you think the lockdowns of the past year and a half have been harmful to kids, or do you think that there's going to be harm that we haven't yet witnessed? That's a good question. I think we're going to we're not going to know those results for a couple of years. It's going to be it's going to take some time. Here in Louisiana, they said that the leap scores went down 5% based because of the pandemic. My my daughter's scores went down from last year. My son took it for the first time. And I totally agree. I mean, last year was difficult for everybody involved, whether it be the students, the teachers, the administrators, the parents. It, I mean, it's hard for everybody. And it's... I'm one of those those parents, and, and my wife is too, where I don't care about the test score. I don't care about their grades. Yeah, I want them to do well. Ultimately, I care more about you being a, a good person and being able to help people and give back and being a good individual and raising good children of your own than you getting all A's and acing tests. Now, I want you to try. Don't get me wrong. Because if you don't try, I get pissed off because I was like you at that age, smart enough that I don't have to crack open a book. But if I don't try, it bites you in the ass. The first note in your most recent book, Lucky Enough. Yep. It's it's a great read. It had the same impact on me that How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie had on me, which is it made me want to do well for others. Yeah. And it's when I'm reading how to win friends, I'm always thinking, I wish everybody would read this. So it's the sort of book that I do plan to gift to people, especially dads, especially girl dads. Mm -hmm. The first note is from August 14th of 2017. Yep. Is that the first time you had ever written anything to your daughter? Yes. Wow. It was um, – I've always been – back in the day when, when I ran my own office and staff and I was always a big quote person and I would share idioms and, and sayings and things with, with my staff that I thought were timely and, and important. It, it was a Monday um, in, in our school system in Mandeville. We typically start on a Thursday or a Friday. And that year we started on a Thursday, so the first two year, first two days of fourth grade were a little tough, um, a little stressful, and, and anxious for Addison. And I note we noticed that on Thursday and Friday, we noticed her anxiety over the weekend. And, and honestly, Brad, I didn't, I didn't even think anything of it. And I keep telling people this, and they don't believe me. I was just making her lunch. I happened to scribble something that came to my head, and I thought, well, maybe this will make her feel better. Because I can't sit next to her at lunch and tell her it's going to be okay. Um, So maybe if she sees that I wrote something to her, maybe that will make her feel better. And I kept doing it, partly for her, mostly for me. Um, I'm quite candid about that in in the book, and I have been with other people. I was still emotionally reeling from losing a job and trying to forgive myself. Because... I kept blaming myself for putting my kids in that position because it was her fourth school in five years. 
that wasn't her choice. That was my choice. And, and trying to make peace with myself. And it took several years. I think it finally happened last year that I finally fully forgave myself. Um, we can thank therapy for that. But in, in the moment, I thought we were only going to do it for a couple of weeks. I thought that maybe I would forget she would be running late or, God forbid, she would say, Dad, please stop, <laughs> which I, I get eye rolls instead. And and it was around second or third week. We we happened to be running late, and she mentioned, hey, don't don't forget my message and my lunch. And wow. that's when I, I realized, well, okay, she's paying attention. She knows I'm here. And, and the interviews she and I have done, whether it was the Today Show or Kelly Clarkson, she has – admitted that you know fourth grade we were not close that could be partially hormones um that could be partially where i was mentally um as a dad and and as a man because i like i said i still hadn't forgiven myself but as each grade has matured and passed we've gotten closer like this morning she texted me her schedule for her class as soon as she got on the bus she didn't text her mom she texted me she always texts me stuff first and ashley likes to remind me see you are making that connection she does appreciate what you do she is coming to you first so i know that relationship has definitely helped us over time and my son starts fourth grade this year middle school the same thing addison started four years ago and I decided to start writing him messages, not as, as deep and impactful as, as Addison's, uh, but something for him to know that I'm here. I was petrified to be the father to a son. More I so than a girl? Yeah. I always wanted girls because I felt like I, I could be a better father to a girl. I'm the exact opposite. Talk more about that. Because growing up, I will say this with a disclaimer, I had zero girlfriends in high school and middle school, but I had better relationships with girls in high school and middle school than boys because I always felt judged and made fun of more by boys. So as I got older, I always felt maybe I'm better suited to be the dad to only girls and you know growing up my dad and I weren't particularly close you know over the last couple of years we've we've mended that relationship and it's gotten better my grandfather and and my dad were not particularly close as was my grandfather and his father so it was kind of like I was afraid the cycle was going to continue and I remember when we saw the ultrasound that it was going to be a boy, I broke down in tears and left the room. And Ashley understood how I felt. And over time, I realized that what I was feeling was, I don't want to say silly, but I think I was worried that I was going to be like everybody else in my family. And so the crying were cries of disappointment or fear or it was it was dis disappointment and fear at first and it took me some time to get over it and realize how dumb i was being and that you know what this is my opportunity to say enough's enough 
I can fix it. And, you know, he's my little shadow. He goes with me everywhere. You know, I've coached his sports teams before. I help him with baseball in the backyard. We do a lot of things together. And I thought this would be the time in fourth grade to start the same thing with him, just with a little bit different approach. Um, Just because I think where he is in fourth grade and where Addison was in fourth grade, two different things. Because she's been to five schools. This is only his second. So he hasn't endured some of that anxiety that she has over the years. Yeah, making friends all over again is anxiety-inducing. Yeah. I had to go through it once. I can't imagine having to go through it four or five times. And, and I did it a lot as a kid. My, my dad's job, we moved around a lot. I've lived in 10 states. I've moved my family around a lot. It's now seeing how hard it is now, especially it, for kids to adapt. I, it's, you know, it opens your eyes as a parent. Something you said in Lucky Enough, the book I want to ask you about, because it pertains to what we're discussing. It says, as a leader, I didn't always follow the words I spoke, and yep. I lost my job because of it. Yep. Well, what happened? To, to put it in, in PG terms. <laughs> uh, Be, out of obligation? Or uh, to- I'm going to start with PG terms, then, then I'll get into more deeper terms. I'm not a people pleaser. I, You're disagreeable. Yeah, and because I've worked with people or encounter people over time that would kiss, kiss ass and, you know, they would get treated better, promotions and whatever. I wanted my work, my morals, my ethics to shine and let that be the dictator of what I get. When I got to Atlanta in 2014 at Georgia Tech, the first day on the job, I came home and I told my wife, I said, one of two things is going to happen. A, my career is going to end here because I'm going to work here the rest of my life. Or B, my career is going to end here because I'm going to lose my job. And I said, I think it's number two. I said, that's just the eerie feeling I got. When I was hired, uh, we're now really good friends. He brought me on with the desire. He said, I want you to replicate what you did at Miami and do it here. I'm like, I can do that. I came into an office with some um, hostilities and and some other things that I was not aware of. And using a, a term from uh, Miami coach Al Golden's vocabulary, everywhere I turned, there was a dead body. Like there were something I was not aware of on the interview, a situation that no one told me about. There were a lot of surprises. Also walking into the job where the head football coach didn't like me from day one. Why is that? Because I don't kiss ass. I was dead from day one. Was it that white-haired fella? Yeah, Paul Johnson. I, I, I think I was dead from day one. And what I did was two of my assistants had been handling those duties with football before I got there. So like for a month or so in that transition time, he liked both of them a lot. And I noticed that. I'm like, all right, why would I mess that up? 
So I made sure to position them as the people in that pos- in dealing with, with that sport, and I'll be behind the scenes. He didn't like that. But one of my faults is when I know somebody does not like me, I'm sure as hell not going to be in front of their face more. I'm going to be in front of their face less. Some other moving parts happened. I ended up getting a new boss. He and I didn't see eye to eye. And it's just, you know what? It is what it is. And in the grand I, I was so angry for a few years after, like violently angry. But looking back, it's like, you know what? If I didn't, if I didn't get fired from that job, we wouldn't be talking right now. My kid and I wouldn't have the relationship we have now. I wouldn't have been able to share some of the things I've learned with other people. I didn't go ask out asking for all this national publicity or becoming famous in Korea, which has been a very <laughs> odd journey in itself. I didn't I just wanted to be a better dad because I knew I failed for a few years because I was chasing a career. I was chasing something that did not love me back and I got burned by it and I was mad. I was I think I'm finally over my anger towards them at, at Georgia Tech because again, had that not happened, none of this would have happened. I wouldn't have been able to go back to school, wouldn't have written a book, wouldn't be writing notes to my kid, wouldn't be more actively involved in their lives because you as a former athlete know it's not a nine to five job in college athletics. I felt so guilty missing some things at my kids' school when they were, you know, in pre K and, and first and second grade. And as my wife said, they don't remember anything. But I said, But I do. And I and I for so long I I think still back in my mind, Brad, I'm I feel like I'm playing catch up. Because I want to make sure that when they get older, I don't want them to say, well, my dad was never around or he chose his job over us. Mm. And I did that when they were younger. And I regret it. I mean, it kills me. But I, I'm here now. And I, I think I have two good kids. I mean, I'm biased. It, it's... You know, it's kind of like the advice I give Addison when I when I write to her every day. I, I try to live what what I share with her and and the idioms and the anecdotes. And going back to tech, I I wasn't walking the walk and talking the talk. I was just talking. Another excerpt from the book: I don't want my daughter to grow up with the same insecurities as me and her mom Ashley. Yeah. Years of therapy made strides to undo the damage, but the the scars still remain. Yeah. You very much believe in the benefits of therapy. 100%. Even going so far as to say your ultimate goal is to not have to send your daughter to therapy until high school. Yeah. That was partially joking, partially truth. I'm I'm not blaming my parents for anything. You know, I experienced a lot of stuff in school you know, bullying and, and feeling left out and not fitting in like a lot of kids do. And I think over time that manifested and that that little 
rubber band ball kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the incident I mentioned senior year in high school, you know, being told I'll never amount to anything until jackasses flew. By the way, do you think that was deliberate? Do you think that teacher knew how to motivate and inspire you? Or get your ass into high gear? No, he was old school. Mm. My sister loved him. I'm like, I hate him. And I think, you know, it was it was kicking the can down the road in my life to the inevitable. And it, it was going to ultimately happen. My parents grew up in a different generation where you didn't talk about that kind of stuff. You don't talk about your feelings. Um, I'm quite open. I'm probably more open than normal people should be. But I, we want our kids to know that it's okay to not be okay and to not feel okay. And I'm grateful that the last three years when we've had the NAMI Walk fundraiser, my family's been by my side walking it with me and doing it all with me because they know how important it is to me. Mental health and therapy, I mean, it's... We all, whether we believe it or not, we could all use a therapist. May not admit it, and it, it's not because there's something wrong with us. It's just have somebody to talk to and listen and maybe help you. Like, you know what? Maybe look at it from this side instead because I can be stubborn. I can be narrow-minded on, on some things, but when I talk it out with somebody, I'm like, oh, now I hear it. Now I see why maybe so-and-so may have been upset by that or why they felt that way. It's not because there's something wrong with all of us. It's simply to have somebody to talk to and, and listen. Um, I think we could all benefit from that. And I keep jumping back and forth. When I was at Baylor, I was told by my bosses not to talk about mental health or therapy publicly. Because you started to do it? Or I started to do it. And they said, that's going to hurt your career and your life. And I think my response was, terrific, let it. I would rather share something, an experience that could help somebody, than keep it in. I get messages on what I write. I, I, it's, I'm not overcome by mail and, and direct messages, but I do get a message maybe once or twice a week that says, Something you wrote or something you said happened to me too or happened to uh, my kid, and I appreciate you sharing that. So I would rather overshare and maybe that helps somebody than keep it inside. You say in the book what you think of yourself is much more important than what others think of you. Mm -hmm. And I bring that up because that's the concern when you – share your feelings or the fact that you may be having trouble with your mental health the fear is that others are going to judge you or right. think you are weak or whatever the case may be it is so hard for an adolescent girl to not care what other people think i mean oh, if yeah. there's any at any point in your life where you are most concerned what people think it is those early adolescent years, yes. I would think. Yep. And social media has probably made this a lot worse. Oh, it's exacerbated the problem for sure. Jonathan Haidt's book, The Coddling of the American Mind, mm -hmm. he points out that the depression and anxiety rates among early adolescent girls prior to 2013 was like 
So what is that? One in 12, something like that. Yeah. It's up to 15% now or yeah. as of 2013 moving yeah. beyond to current day. The only major change in society or the, I should say the most impactful change was the advent of Facebook. By this time it was ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. And so he believes that social media, keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak, um, jealousy, mm-hmm. bullying, all mm-hmm. of that skyrocketed around 2013. Yep. What do you do to help your daughter? I, maybe the notes or maybe that's the answer. But is there something I'm, I'm looking out for my own sake because my daughter's going to be 12 and 13 and asking for a phone and want to get yeah. on Instagram type uh, platforms at some point. Like what advice would you give someone who has a daughter to maintain strong mental health? Yeah. I mean, that's having being 12 and 13 with a still developing brain and then adding that aspect of Instagram and TikTok and all that other stuff. Uh, it's hurtful. We, um, you know, Addison got a phone at 11. She's 13 now. We made her sign a contract with stipulations. One of them was you cannot bully. Use this device to bully. If you do, you will lose it for multiple years. And trying to teach them, and Jackson will be coming up getting a phone soon, and trying to teach them that, hey, it's a lot easier now for people to say mean things to you because they're doing it behind anonymous faces and and other crap. And it's easier for a dad to say this to his his 13-year-old daughter than for his 13-year-old daughter to believe him. But I've told her a couple of times, if they don't say it to your face, then who gives a shit? (laughs) Honestly. I mean, they want to say it to get you all worked up. They say it anonymously or they say it through text. Who gives a shit? If they're not going to do it to your face, don't worry about them. Now, it's easier said than done, and, and it's definitely hard with, you know, junior high hormones are raging, man. It, it's it, it's a lot to handle, and God, God bless our junior high and middle school teachers and administrators for for doing everything they can during such a pivotal time in our kids' lives. But we, we've told her, we've said, look, you've been bullied. You know how it feels. Your brother's been bullied. Your parents have been bullied. It sucks. Don't do it to somebody else. I love that. If you're going to change the world, start with yourself. So yeah. you're teaching her not to bully or making her sign a contract. That's, and that's and powerful. the other thing I, I've, I've written to her before is, you know, don't worry about the people that are talking behind your back because they're behind you for a reason. Mm. Because like a, a lot of the stuff that some of these and, and I said it's not only just junior high kids your age, but adults do it too. Believe it or not, when you get into a workplace, if the wrong people are there, you're going to have that those issues. A lot of it stems from jealousy because they're not willing to put in the work you're doing or they don't have the talent or the ability you have, and there's no way they can do it. So just remember, if they're talking about you behind your back, let them. Don't worry about them. Give them something good to talk about. Yeah. While you were developing this skill set and achieving something, 
worthwhile, they were online anonymously talking shit to people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and again, it's easier said than done. I mean, I every now and then I'll get some pretty mean messages and it's hard for me to block it out because I just want to reply and just unleash a list of words that they'll never understand. But doing that's not going to do anything. I mean, paying attention to trolls is, is what they want. So if you ignore them, they eventually go away. Yeah, it's not only if they won't say it to your face, but if they say it without a face. If you're not showing your face at all yeah. and you're trying to get at me it's not or, if, or work. if your handles like a bunch of letters and work and numbers and like yeah. if you can't put your name next to your face this sounds bad i typically don't interact with you if i cannot identify who you are mm-hmm. that's just for my own mental well-being i want to make sure i'm talking to either people i know or people i know to be real yeah, that should be a rule for everyone, I yeah. think. One of the things in the book that I liked was your saying that we live in a data-rich age, but we are a wisdom deficit society. Oh, yeah. Is wisdom something you can learn at university? I think wisdom comes over time. Learning the hard way, failing, and and I think that that statement is rather – more true now with where the battle we're facing between misinformation and disinformation. Which is what? Well, I think misinformation is rumors and and as a former college PR guy, the dreaded word sources, you know, that kind of stuff. Some of that stuff's true, some of it's false. That's misinformation. There's no ill intent. You're not intending to deceive anybody. Disinformation, in my mind, is malicious intent. Propaganda. Yeah, you're intending to give information that you know is false in order to hurt people and for them to believe it. And and I think, you know, that's that's the big battle we're facing. And not just online, you, you face it in dealing whatever line of work you're in. People have these ideas and it's, you know, my own parents have had their battles with disinformation. I have family members battling it. It it disappoints me. Um, but all we can do is is try to educate them with the factual information. And the the war against disinformation is far from over. I mean, we're like in the first of like a thousand battles. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a long time. The internet is a wonderful tool. There's a lot of information at your fingertips, but the internet can also be bad if you fall down the wrong rabbit hole and you start reading things that, that just aren't true and you start to believe them. And then that affects your, your daily life and your daily thinking. The book, Lucky Enough, how did it come together? Did you need to save money in order to do this? I had a college classmate of mine who was working for – a publisher out of Houston. Um, she was doing like some freelance copy editing, and she said, "You know what? You need to put this in a book." I'm like, "I, I don't, I don't know what the hell to do with that. I don't know what to do." Mm-hmm. So she, I talked, had a casual conversation with with their main owner and editor. It wasn't the right fit. So 
I, I put together a proposal of 20 or 30 pages and sent it to a couple of places and uh, a publishing house out of New York said, yeah, we're interested. Um, the second try. Uh, it was probably like the fourth or fifth, I think. Did the rejections you were getting, did that hurt? No, I, I didn't put any stock into it. Because mm. at this time I'd also send them to like, you know, those big places, Random House. I was really casting a wide net and that net returned zero. Mm. And this is where my, my education about independent publishing, I mean, I didn't know it existed. And they said, great, yeah, we'll do your book. It's going to cost $3,000. I'm like, oh, shit. Okay. So, well, I'm going to need some time to come up with that money. And I hate asking for help. I don't like asking for help at all. And a friend of mine said, hey, maybe do a Kickstarter campaign to raise money. I'm like, okay. And I would, you know, if you gave X amount, it was like 50 or 75 You'll get one of the first books. I'll sign it, and I'll send it to you. We raised about $3,500 in two months. Um, got it published. You know, the first year, we probably only sold like 300 books, which was 298 more than I thought I would ever sell. <laughs> I thought my wife and my mom would be the only two that would buy it. I, I learned throughout this process that, you know, it takes several years for a book to be successful. And the outside of, you know, these bestsellers that are automatic because they're from celebrities or whoever. Mm -hmm. And after, you know, towards the end of 2020, I'm like, well, you know what, Ash? We sold like 600 books. That was cool. That was fun. Ultimately, the book was for Addison so that she has something of me to pass along to her kids for whenever I die, whether that's early or late whenever she has something of me that she can have with her forever said that was the ultimate end goal for me it was never money and then the today show happened in january of 21 they call you out of the blue they a producer emailed me this would have been the week of thanksgiving i think in 2020 we thought we were going to be able to do it in december but there were some scheduling conflicts and they said that Craig Melvin had seen something I had posted. I may have tagged him in an Instagram post, in an Instagram message. And they said, we're interested in doing this segment for Dad's Got This that he's done, that I had seen a couple of, of stories he's done before. And I said, well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, let's do it. And we filmed it second week of January, and it came out the end of January, and I was flabbergasted by the attention we got. The book was a bestseller on Amazon for like 10 minutes, so I was able to snap a photo of it, so I knew it wasn't a dream. And then I'm like, great, well, that was cool. That was a fun ride. Sold a couple more books. Got to talk to Craig Melvin on the Today Show. Al Roker said my name. <laughs> That's cool, man. I, I can die a happy dad. I, I'm. This is more than I ever expected. Sure. And then a week later, I got a Facebook message from a producer on the Kelly Clarkson Show. And... You know, some months went by back and forth, and then we we recorded that interview in April, and it aired the week leading into Father's Day, and that got more traction. That When that story aired, uh, WDSU had called us to do something locally because they knew the story was coming, 
And I said, sure, yeah. Well, Addison was had nothing to do, so we did it. And then all of a sudden, I started getting these random Google alerts that it was on the news in Pittsburgh and San Francisco. So whatever the the parent media company is that owns WDSU, they blast it out to everybody. Mm-hmm. So it was on multiple multiple platforms. And then Good Morning America's one of their website writers contacted me to do a story. And then that's where the funny turn of events with Korea comes in. I now have like 3,000 Korean followers on Instagram. I, My wife thinks, she's like, I'm really concerned about what's going on. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And there were four stories in Korea media about us. We, I did Korean interviews. The book is plans to be reprinted in Korean uh, by one of their publishers that does foreign rights out in Seoul. Again, more than I ever asked for, more than I ever expected. And then People Magazine had something at the end of, end of July. So this all goes back to me just wanting to be a halfway decent dad for my kids and, and leaving them with something. And, and if these stories nationally, internationally can help another parent, then I've done my job. That's awesome. Has your success with the book boosted your daughter's popularity at school? You know, it's funny. When, when, when I found out when the Today Show was airing, because I had to go check her out of school, and I had to say why we were checking out. I'm like, well, we're doing a TV interview. Mm-hmm. And I found out when it was airing, I, e- I emailed her principal and all of her teachers. Mm-hmm. And she got home. She's like, you emailed my teachers? I said, you're damn straight I did. <laughs> They, I, I said they need to know that one of their students is going to be on national television. It's like kids aren't going to freak out about you. I mean she gained some friends afterwards that she didn't – people she didn't know because they saw the story and they said, I wish my dad did that for me. I bet you a lot of them are now. Yeah, you know, and maybe so, and, and if they do, that's great. She likes to keep a low profile. <laughs> She's introverted like me, but – I think deep down she does enjoy it. <laughs> and now that she's in eighth grade and now the big wig on, on her junior high campus, you know, I think she'll enjoy it a little bit more. Yeah. Are they required to wear masks at school? Yes, they are. Mm. What do you think about that? Do it. Yeah. I'd, I, I use this analogy. You got to wear a seatbelt to drive a car and ride in a car. They save lives. Vaccines and masks save lives. Mr. Glenn Clark, mm-hmm. friend of yours? Yes, sir. He died recently. Yep. He had COVID, I understand. Mm-hmm. Was he vaccinated? No. He was anti. He was adamantly opposed yes. to wearing a mask. And and I hadn't talked to Glenn in, in, in years because he did some photography for us um, at UL and he was actually good friends with one of my uncles and you know it hurts I mean there's there's nothing I can do um, Glenn was a good man I, he was a good man that made a bad decision my college classmate David Begno has keeps coming back to Louisiana to do stories on COVID and I don't like it when it's negative stories about Louisiana because there's a lot of good people here and there's a lot of good stories here, but when you see that on the news and 
when you see kids suffering, I mean, that kills me. I, 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 I can't. And I, I just don't know how much it's going to take. How much more do we need to see for others to, to realize this, this shit's serious? I saw you tweeted about an Ikea something that you bought. Did you put it together yourself? Yes. I, I, I always tell my wife that there are a reason why carpenters, uh, mechanics, plumbers, there's a reason why there's professions because of people like me because I, 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 I'm not a manly man. I don't do that shit. <laughs> I, I'll watch Google. I, I'll, I'll watch YouTube to try to figure it out. But if it requires like a lot of tools, that ain't me, man. That ain't a, me. I'm not a tools guy either. In fact, the only time I ever worked with tools, my girlfriend in college's dad had a wastewater pumps business. And so sometimes during summer breaks or winter breaks, I would work for her dad. And wastewater pump work is, is really gross. And I can remember one time taking the wrench out of whatever we were working on, and it had the doo-doo and the feces on yeah. The wrench. Nope. No way. <laughs> in 2011, because of that experience, I had I had a little bit of experience with tools, and it did make me feel a little more masculine. In 2011, I needed a, a, a bed to go in the downstairs bedroom, and it was the sort of townhouse where you walk in, it's the first thing you see. Mm-hmm. On the right there is a bedroom. It has French doors, and they're always open. And there's a bed. So I thought, if I get this bed, it was only like $300, beautiful bed. If I buy it and put it together myself, I will always have this pride walking every time I walk in the house knowing that I put it together. Everybody who walks in the house, I can brag and say I put it together. One of the biggest mistakes of my life, I, I was miserable putting this thing together. It must have taken me like three days, like three work days, which mm-hmm. is what, eight times three, 24 hours. Um, I told myself I'd always hire somebody to to do stuff like that in the future, but I did find myself putting a crib together very recently. Cribs I can do. <laughs> I've done that, but Ikea furniture and other stuff, uh-uh, ain't for me. You have a favorite book? I think right now my favorite one might be uh, Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey. I listened to the audiobook. It was pretty good. I'm a big fan of McConaughey, and we had an episode earlier this year with Brent McDonald. I, th- I believe the title is How to Be a Better Man, mm-hmm. and the first thing we talk about is McConaughey because they're both UT alumnus, yeah. alumni, and they sound just alike. So if listeners, if you haven't heard that episode and you're a fan of McConaughey, I highly recommend that, that <laughs> episode. That uh, that book is basically his journal of 37 years, right? Yeah, it's... He kept a and a daily journal and listened to it. I'm like, shit. I I wish I would, you know, kind of what I do now is journaling just in a digital format. But I I wish when I was younger and in college, I wish I would have done that. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that I was on dazed and confused or anything like that. <laughs> My life wasn't that much fun. But you know, yeah, his some of his journal entries and him looking back on it, it was it was fascinating. I think not only a gratitude practice, which you could do in your journal, just write a few things that you're grateful for every day, but just the power of reflection. People mm-hmm. don't take time to think nowadays because they're going from app to email to whatever. Yeah. And so we're distracted. 
people aren't good listeners, which I know you're a big fan of, of this adage that you have two ears and one mouth. So if there were one habit that I wish everyone would pick up, it would be journaling. Mm -hmm. I've been doing it for 20 years. It's benefited me so much. And the thing is, you don't know how it's going to benefit you. A lot of it comes later. That's what happened to me. I wouldn't be sitting with you here. I wouldn't have a podcast if I didn't first have a blog. And the blog was just born out of years of journaling. Yeah. Ready to do some fun questions before we cut out? Yes, please, because the last few minutes have been quite depressing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I will try not to depress you with this first question. Okay. It's always my first question. Social media, net negative or net positive for society? I think it's a net positive. It's just at times it's outweighed by the faceless idiots. Mm. If you could spend two weeks anywhere in the world and money were no object – where are you going? I would hopefully – I hate boats, but I would do this. I would hopefully be on a mega yacht uh, being chartered by one of the captains of Below Deck Mediterranean. And what is Below Deck Mediterranean? One of the greatest shows ever on <laughs> Bravo. Yes, I watch Bravo with my wife on a nightly basis. They go to Italy, Spain, Greece. Uh, we were supposed to be in uh, – Spain and the Gibraltar area these last two summers, that a trip that keeps getting postponed, but hopefully we'll be at the Mediterranean soon. We had a trip planned for Prague March of last year. They moved it three times, still owe us a refund. This is KLM Airlines. Yeah. Haven't seen that refund. It's $1,500. I really would like to have it back. Understood. <laughs> You're a Jeopardy contestant. You get to choose the category for Final Jeopardy. What category are you choosing? Uh, I'm going to go with college sports trivia because hmm. I know a lot of dumb crap. and I, I know a lot of dumb, useless knowledge anyway, but I <laughs> feel like that would be a huge win. So if I threw you some rapid-fire questions like where did Drew Bledsoe go to school? Washington State. Who were the two teams playing when the band came onto the field and there was a touchdown scored? California and Stanford. That's impressive. There was a guy around the time of Josh Booty who was also a stud baseball slash football player mm -hmm. who went to play baseball after playing quarterback in college. Who was that? Will that be Brock Berlin? Not the person I was thinking of. Because I don't think – did well, Brock Berlin played at Miami, yep. right? He was from – wait a minute. From, I think the guy that you just said and the guy I have in mind – Flipped? No, wait. No, Booty and Berlin went to the same high school, right? Yeah, Evangel, yeah. Yeah. No, the guy I'm thinking of played in the Big Ten. In fact, he may have been the reason – that Tom Brady didn't start. Now you're going to know the answer. Todd Helton. No. No. I'm thinking of Drew Henson. Todd Helton, where did he play? Played at Tennessee. That's right. Same scenario. Let's say you're a contestant on Jeopardy, and as you enter Final Jeopardy, the category is NCAA sports, and you're tied with the other two contestants mm -hmm. with $10,000 each. They, all of you have 10000 Yep. How much are you wagering? I'm not a risk taker or a gambler, 
But in that instance, I would probably go all in. Who would be your choice to host Jeopardy if it was solely your decision? The internet's pissed off at the current choice. Honestly, didn't get a chance to watch as many as I would want to. Uh, It was close between uh, Mayim Bialik and LeVar Burton. I liked both of them, just their demeanor, how well, you know, it's a a fast-paced show, how well they pace themselves. Um, that it would be close between those two. Let's say you got the head coaching job at an SEC school. Yep. And you had the opportunity to hire either Bill Belichick for six years or Nick Saban for three years. Which would you choose? Saban. If you were hosting a dinner party at your house and money were no object, are you having four, six, or 12 guests? I don't like being around a lot of people at once. <laughs> uh, you know, if money were no object, uh, why not? Do 12. If I gave you $100,000 and forced you to invest it in one of three companies, Amazon, Apple, well, let's say four companies, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Airbnb, which would you put the entire 100000 toward? Probably Apple because of their market share. Mm. Do you have an iPhone? Mm-hmm. And an Apple Watch? My wife and I started buying Apple stock when we married because of what you're saying, market share, the fact that Buffett had just bought 75 million shares. Uh, we were using MacBooks. She had an iWatch, iPhones. I had gotten my groomsmen. AirPods. We both had AirPods. I probably bought four or five pair of those. Wow. Do you wear AirPods or any sort of... I wear the cheap knockoffs you can get for $19 at Walgreens. Are they just as good? Yeah, I mean, I got to charge them. I have some Bluetooth over-the-ear headphones, so like if I go do work at a coffee shop, I'll wear those. What is your favorite coffee? Because you're a bit of a coffee connoisseur, right? I like to think I am. <laughs> Obviously, during the summer months, I, I'll do like iced coffee, iced lattes, uh, the granitas from PJ's. And then when it gets a little cooler, I'll just do a normal drip coffee or latte. If we go somewhere where they have a local coffee place, we'll go try all the local places. I won't do Starbucks mm. or any of the big national chains. I like to do local places. Same here. When I used to go to Prague, like in 2015, in places in Eastern Europe, you couldn't find a Starbucks. They are now everywhere. And what amazes me is that you will see just as many locals in those Starbucks as in the States. And their average income is somewhere around 800 U.S. dollars a month. Good Lord. People don't consider proportions you know like yeah. can i afford this this is almost a one percent it's almost one percent of my income i'm spending on a cup of coffee here i'm exaggerating a little bit <laughs> but you get the idea if somebody dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow what would you do with it pay off student loan debt and we're hoping to buy a house next year so the rest would go towards that awesome are these federal loans that you have or are they private federal and give me an idea of what kind of interest rate you're looking at 
in a perfect world, zero, but uh, that's not how the economy works. So it's, uh, you know, honestly, and I'm ashamed to even admit this, I don't understand how interest rates and finance works. I can hire somebody to figure that crap out. I can help get you out of a crisis, crisis communications, but that finance, all that stuff, I I, I don't you. don't understand it at all. You call me, I'll help you. All right. Is not wanting something just as good as having it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a lot of things that I've wanted and I've gotten, and then when I've gotten it, I'm like, eh, it's not what I thought. I, I go back to I wanted so bad to get job promotions and certain titles in, in college athletics, and once I would get them, it didn't make me feel any different. I was just kind of like, huh. I was chasing something, and now that I got it, I'm like, eh, meh. It, it just didn't didn't do anything for me. I was reading something recently that talked about how fame is a relatively recent thing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until about 100 years ago with the advent of Hollywood big screens that young people began to, to watch and think, I would love that to be me. I think nowadays people routinely and willingly sacrifice their mental health for fame. A lot of times you can't help it. You couldn't have foreseen the notoriety that you would get for this, for these notes that you were no. writing to your daughter? Not at all. Would you like to be famous? Would you like to be more famous than you are right now? No. But you couldn't stop it if you wanted to. You're right. right. I I have this really weird and this would have to be like a whole nother podcast. I'm very I feel weird when I get attention put upon me or when people give me compliments. I don't accept compliments very well. Hmm. I I don't know what it is. It is the attention nice yeah it is but like i mentioned earlier this whole journey had nothing to do with that you can't put the horse back in the barn and you know we'll we'll ride the wave for however long it goes and again if if it helps other parents then i can get over my own issues and and be happy with that any plans to write another book I had thought about it. Um, I wanted to do it in my own handwriting, uh, but apparently that is a very expensive undertaking. And I and I don't know what what else I could do or say. Maybe it's something whenever she finishes high school, or, or when Jack finishes a certain grade. I think right now we'll just write it out, and if this is the only one I write, then it's one more than I ever thought I would. You said you were featured in People magazine, so I thought I would close the same way that article finished, which I thought was pretty cool. Okay. It says, our kids don't care about how much money we make or what my fancy job title may be. They care that we are there for them and that we are listening. I'm quoting you, obviously. I've told Addison many times that we have two ears and one mouth for a reason, and we should learn to listen twice as much as we speak. Mm-hmm. Listen to your kids and be present That's all that matters to them. Yep. Chris, this has been the highlight of my week, man. Thank you for coming. I enjoyed it. Hey, I'm glad to enjoy a beautiful backyard. Uh, I'm sad to say 
being a lifelong Louisiana resident. First time I've ever been to Algiers. So this has been a pleasure. How can people connect with you online and buy your book? I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Chris Yandel. You know, despite what my daughter feels, I am on TikTok as well, um, <laughs> at Dr. Chris Yandel. Uh, and then on my website, uh, by Chris Yandel, B-Y, chrisyandel.com. Uh, there's a link to where to buy the book. It It's really available anywhere in stores personally. Um, there's about four or five Barnes and Nobles here in Louisiana that sell it. Uh, but mostly Target, Amazon, all the online retailers are the place to go. I bought it on Kindle. It was eight ninety nine. Bought it with one click off Amazon. Sweet. I'm very much enjoying it. Thank you. Thank you. Friends, thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode with Chris, please copy the link and share it with a friend. And if you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. 